Well, good morning. My name is Adam, if uh, we haven't met yet, and it's uh, really great to be together today. If you have your Bibles with you, you can uh, keep them open there to Acts chapter 13, which is where we'll uh, spend our time together today. Now, if uh, you know me relatively well, you know at least a couple of things about me. Number one, I love to read. And number two, I love music and have a fairly eclectic taste in music. So at the moment, uh, that means I'm reading a Dave Grohl's autobiography. Uh, I'm actually listening to it as an audio book. Dave uh, narrates it himself, which is pretty cool. Now, if you don't know who Dave Grohl is, and as I discovered this week, our community pastor, Ben Fien, didn't. Come on, Ben. Now, if you don't know who Dave Grohl is, he's the lead singer of the band Foo Fighters. But he's probably most well-known for being the drummer for Nirvana, the seminal rock band which emerged in the early 90s and became one of the the biggest and best-selling bands of all time. And there's a section in this book where Dave describes the event, the moment where everything changed for the band, the event that launched them out into the world. It was September 29th, 1991, and their song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, I kind of just want to play the riff right now, it, it was premiered on MTV. And Dave says that was the spark which lit the fuse. That was the event which kind of made Nirvana into a worldwide phenomenon. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should read Dave's book or listen to Nirvana, but as I was hearing Dave describe that moment, it made me think of this moment in Acts chapter 13. Because what we find in this passage is a significant turning point for the Christian church. We see an event, we see a moment where Christianity is launched out into the world where the gospel really begins to spread to the ends of the earth. And this is really what the book of Acts is all about. It shows us how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which began in Jerusalem, then went out into Judea, the surrounding countryside, then into Samaria, and eventually ended up in the ends of the earth. Well, we see the spark that lit the fuse today in Acts chapter 13 because the gospel begins to go throughout the Roman Empire. And it begins with two missionaries named Saul and Barnabas. They are sent out by God and by the church at Antioch. And this is actually the start of three missionary journeys which Saul, or as we'll come to know him, Paul, will make all throughout the Roman Empire. Three times he will travel throughout the Roman Empire speaking about Jesus and starting churches. And this is going to be the focus for the rest of the book of Acts. We're basically going to follow Paul as he travels around sharing the gospel and starting churches. And a bit of a spoiler alert, it is going to be a wild ride. I mean, we're going to see God do some amazing things. Lives changed, people saved, cities turned upside down. We're going to see riots and shipwrecks disagreements, debates, tearful farewells, fierce opposition, violent beatings, and so much more. But through all of that, 
we're also going to see what is most important. We're going to see the word spread. We're going to see the gospel advance, and we're going to see the church grow. And today, in chapter 13, we're going to follow Saul and Barnabas as far as the island of Cyprus. Now, you can see in a map on the screen there that Cyprus is an island about 100 kilometers offshore from Antioch. And this is going to be their first stop on their first missionary journey. And what we're going to see in this passage, both in the sending of Saul and Barnabas and in their travels throughout Cyprus, is a picture of the church on mission. We're going to see what it looks like when the Spirit of God is at work through the people of God to advance the mission of God. Now, if you're a Christian, the words mission and missionary journeys and evangelism might make you a little bit nervous. I mean, for many Christians, when we think about uh, talking about Jesus, it can be very intimidating, and it can make us feel very out of our depth. But I want you to notice something in this passage. Three times in just these few verses, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, he says the Holy Spirit set Barnabas and Saul apart. Verse 4, he says the Holy Spirit sends them out. And then verse 9, when Paul stands up to speak, we're told that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke wants us to know that when we engage in God's mission in the world, we're not alone. When we go into our workplaces and universities and schools and sports clubs and streets, we are not alone. God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts to lead, guide, and empower us in his mission. What this passage gives us is a picture of the Spirit of God at work among the people of God who are engaged in the mission of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, see, this is the problem with you Christians. You're always trying to convert everybody. Why can't you just leave people alone? Why can't you just let them believe what they want to believe? And I get it. I mean, I understand this objection, but think about it from our perspective. If Jesus Christ really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, God with us, and if Jesus Christ has really done what he claimed to do, to pay for our sin, to rise again, to defeat death itself, then surely the good news about Jesus is the most precious and the most pressing news in the universe. Surely there's nothing more urgent or more wonderful than the good news about Jesus. And so the reason that Christians talk about Jesus so much, not because we're so great and we're so wonderful, it's because Jesus is so great and Jesus is so wonderful. This is why perhaps my favorite definition of evangelism is is this. We're simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We have found everything in Jesus and we want others to as well. And this is what we're gonna see happening today in Acts chapter 13. The spirit of God at work among the people of God on the mission of God. And so I'd like to explore this passage under four headings. No one complained about the four headings last week, so you're getting four again. 
The first, if you're taking notes, is this. What we see the Spirit of God doing in the world as he, engage, as he leads God's people in the mission of God is this. The Spirit brings unity. Now, the, the story begins in Antioch. You might remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the city of Antioch in chapter 11. We saw that Antioch was a big city, significant city, beautiful city, pagan city, and also a multicultural city, a melting pot of different cultures. And the church that got started in Antioch reflected this reality. And we see this just by looking at the leadership team of the church at Antioch. Verse 1 of chapter 13, it's on the screen. I won't read it out because we kind of looked at this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but you can tell that this is a diverse church. I mean, first of all, there's Barnabas. He was a Jew from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. There was uh, Simeon, who was a black African. There was Lucius of Cyrene, who was Arabic. Now, we don't know the ethnicity of Menaean, but we do know he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And if you're wondering which Herod this was from last week, it was Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And so this tells us that Menaean, he was kind of from the upper echelons of society. And then you've got Saul, a Jew from Tarsus, the, the Roman city. And so this was a diverse team because it was a diverse church, a multi-ethnic church, a multi-class church. And we shouldn't think, well, this is just the way it was back in those days, because it wasn't. The Greeks did not like the Romans. The Romans did not like the Greeks. The Jews did not like anybody. The rich despised the poor. The poor hated the rich. The educated looked down on the uneducated, and so on and so forth. But not in the church at Antioch. Why? Because this is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God brings people together from every nationality, background, and tribe. And so if you could see what I see when I look out on a, a Sunday over the, the gathering of our church family, you would see people from all different backgrounds. You would see people from all different situations and stations in life. And what has brought us together to be in this room today? It's not common interests. It's not because we all like the same stuff. It's not because we all listen to Nirvana. That's because we have a common saviour. I love the way that uh, the theologian D.A. Carson puts it. He says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. Now, why does this matter for, for, for mission? Why is this important as our mission as God's people? Well, imagine you walked into a church and it was only white people or Asian people or old people or young people. You might assume, well, Jesus must only be for white people or Asian people or old people or young people. But if you walk into a community, a church community, and you find white people and Asian people and African people and old people and young people and rich people and poor people and even cat people, Ah, more emails. I don't know why I do it to myself. 
I got bombarded with cat photos last time. (laughs) You will realize that Jesus is for all kinds of people because you can see it in front of you. You see, our unity in Christ in itself is a witness to the world because the Spirit of God is at work in the world and He brings us together. It's the first thing we see in this passage. The second is this, if you're taking notes. The Spirit sends us out. Now, this uh, church in Antioch, they had a big decision to make. What should they do next? You see, as we saw a few weeks ago, they were a healthy church, they were a growing church, they were reaching people in Antioch, but they knew that God's purposes went beyond Antioch. They knew that God had set apart Saul for a special work, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to be the messenger to the nations. And so what are they going to do next? Well, they do what all churches should do when they need guidance from God. They seek him in prayer and fasting. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, a little bit of a sidebar on fasting. If you're not familiar with fasting, very simply, it's to abstain from food or drink for a specific period of time for a specific spiritual purpose. That's what it is. And in this instance, the spiritual purpose was to seek God's guidance. And so let me just say to you, if you've ever thought to yourself, well, I'd really like to know God's will about this situation, or I'm really feeling quite distant from God, it could be that fasting might help you. Fasting has been given to us by God to focus to, or to sharpen our awareness of the things of God and to deepen our focus on the things of God. See, fasting is to say, I'm going to turn away from this, and and it might not always be food or drink, it might be social media, or TV, or a hobby. I'm going to turn away from this, and I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to pay less attention to this, so I can pay more attention to God. It's what the the church in Antioch are doing, that they're seeking God's guidance. And God gives them his guidance. We read in verse 2 that he speaks through the Holy Spirit. Now, this was almost certainly not an audible voice. It it was probably maybe a message through a prophet or a a vision or maybe a shared sense of inner conviction. Whatever the means may be, the message was clear. Saul and Barnabas are to leave the church at Antioch and to do the work that God has called them to do. But I want you to notice, even though this message was was clear, it wasn't exactly comprehensive. I mean, God doesn't give them very many details, does he? He tells them who is to go and kind of what they're to do, but he doesn't tell where and he doesn't say when. And isn't this often the way that God works? When God calls us to do something, he very rarely gives us a list of detailed steps. Not like Google Maps, where you kind of can punch in your destination, and then it'll tell you exactly every turn you've got to make. It'll tell you how long it's going to take. It'll even tell you if you're going to run into traffic. This is not how God often works. God usually gives us the first step, trusts us to take that step, and to trust Him that He's going to go with us. And so this is what God does with the church at Antioch. And they trust God. Look at what we read in verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
Now, just imagine for a moment, this would not have been easy for the church at Antioch. Saul and Barnabas were key leaders in that church. They'd been with that church for a long time, remember, teaching the church at Antioch. This would have been a really painful thing for them to do. But, but it'll often be this way if we're engaged in God's mission. I mean, if, if God gives us an opportunity in the future to, to plant a church somewhere or to start another campus, it will involve sending people out. And it will be painful, but we will lay hands on them and we'll send them out because we want the gospel to spread and we want the church to grow and God to get more glory. Because this is what the Spirit of God is doing in the world. Spirit brings unity. The Spirit sends us out. But then the question becomes, well, what do we do on this mission? What does it look like practically? Well, this is what we see next as we follow Saul and Barnabas to Cyprus. And it leads us to our third point, which is the Spirit safeguards truth. You see, Saul and Barnabas set out for Cyprus. And we're we're not told why they go to Cyprus. Maybe there's some nice beaches there. Or maybe it was because of Barnabas' hometown, so it seemed like a natural place to start. We're not told why they go there, and it doesn't really matter. What matters is what they do when they get there, because it sets up a pattern that we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. Look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, not Salami, as I kind of read it a few times this week, it was getting close to lunchtime, Salamis, a city that's kind of on the east coast of the island, when they arrived there, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. So when they arrive in this city, they don't actually just start preaching in the streets. They go to the Jewish synagogues, the gathering place for Jewish people and for God-fearers, Gentiles who believed in God. Now, why do they do this? They do this because they know this will be fertile ground. They know they're going to meet people who believe in the God of the Scriptures, who already know the Old Testament Scriptures, And so there'll be a lot of common ground. It's a good place to start. But they don't just go there and sit and listen. We're told they go there and they proclaimed the word of God. This is what they did as they engaged in God's mission. The first thing they did. And it shows us a really important principle, which is this. The word of God is at the heart of the mission of God. See, the first thing that these missionaries do is they don't build a hospital They don't start a homeless shelter. They don't feed the poor. Now, they're all wonderful things to do. They're good things. They're things that we can and we should be doing. But it's not the first thing that they do. It's not the main thing that they do. The first thing they do is they share the word of God. They share the truth of the gospel. And so as we engage in God's mission in our circles, we should love, we should serve, we should cook meals, we should mow lawns, we should give generously, but we can and we must also speak. Paul writes about the gospel in in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, that it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And, And so I think the challenge for Christians, if someone asked me what I believe about Jesus, would I be able to share that clearly with them? The Word of God is at the heart of the mission of God. And this explains why Saul and Barnabas go to the synagogues, preach the Word of God, and it also explains what happens next. 
See, Saul and Barnabas have an encounter in Paphos. They travel over to the other side of the island. They go to this city of Paphos, and they have an encounter with two men in particular. Now, one of them is the Roman governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. So he was an important man. He was a significant man. He was like the mayor or the premier. Luke also tells us in verse 7 that he was an intelligent man. He must have read lots of books and listened to Nirvana. Intelligent man, smart man, important man, but he also seems to be something of a lost man, searching for truth. You see, not only does he call for Saul and Barnabas when he hears that they're in town and says, hey, will you come and share the word of God with me? But he also has an attendant, an advisor named Elimas, who was also goes by the name of Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of Jesus. But as we discover in the ensuing narrative, this man was nothing like Jesus. Luke tells us that he was a false prophet and a sorcerer. And so it seems that this man had some kind of spiritual insight, some kind of spiritual power. He held some kind of spiritual sway over this Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. Uh, it's a little bit like, and I don't mean to use Lord of the Rings again, because you know, I, I know everyone's not into it and hasn't seen it, but maybe this can be your encouragement to go do that. You know, there's a, a scene in the two towers where there's this king, King Theoden, he's the king of Rohan, and he has an advisor named Wormtongue. Which, by the way, if you have an advisor named Wormtongue, that should be a pretty good sign that you're not going to be getting good advice. And sure enough, Wormtongue is, is an evil man and, and he, he's kind of manipulating King Theoden. He's using his words to, to twist him and to make him do his evil will. And this is kind of the dynamic between Elimas and Sergius Paulus. And so the arrival of Saul and Barnabas is a threat to this Jewish sorcerer. And so he goes on the offensive. Look at verse 8. But Elimas, the sorcerer, opposed Saul and Barnabas and tried to turn the proconsul, the Roman governor, from the faith, tries to divert him away from Jesus. Now, when Saul sees this taking place, it's fair to say that he's having none of it. We'll look at verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. Now, just hit the pause button there for a moment because I've had a few people say to me over the last few weeks, Adam, why do you keep calling Paul Saul? You know, wasn't his name changed when he was converted on the road to Damascus? And the answer is that no, it wasn't. In fact, this is the first time in the book of Acts that Saul is called Paul. And notice that his name is not changed, but rather he has two names. You see, Saul kind of straddled two worlds. He was a Jewish man living in Tarsus, a Roman city. And so he had a Jewish name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul. And now that Saul will be traveling away from Jerusalem, away from Jewish cities and communities, he is predominantly going to be referred to as Paul from here on out. Hit play again. Paul sees Elimas turning Sergius Paulus away. Look at what he says. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked straight at Elimas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Not just one kind, all kinds. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Tell us what you really think, Paul. Whew. I mean, what's going on here? Is he having a bad day? 
why is Paul speaking so strongly here? Or maybe we should ask, why is the Holy Spirit speaking so strongly through Paul? And the answer is that the gospel is at stake. Elimas was deceiving others. He was leading people away from Jesus. You know, Paul says in verse 10 that he is perverting the right ways of the Lord. It's interesting, Elimas was a Jew. In fact, he's called by Luke a Jewish sorcerer. Now, this is kind of a contradiction in terms. It's like saying a, a, a pleasant root canal. I, I mean, see, the Old Testament was clear that there was no place for sorcery among the people of God. And so what this man seems to have done, he's taken some bit of his Jewish faith, he's taken a bit of occultic practices, and he's kind of mixed them together to create this hybrid, syncretistic version. And Paul's saying, no, no, you are perverting the right ways of the Lord. You're not creating a whole new path, but you're bending the path of God to suit your own agenda, to, to make it fit your own will. And this is actually the strategy of the devil. The devil takes God's word and twists it. Remember the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? And this is why Paul calls him child of the devil. I mean, Elamas calls himself Bar-Jesus, I'm son of Jesus, and Paul says, no, actually, you're Bar-Devil. You're a son of the devil. You are perverting the truth about Jesus. You are bending God's word to suit your will rather than allowing God's word to bend and to shape you. Now, let's be honest. Isn't this what we're all tempted to do at times? When the word of God confronts us, when there's something in it that we might not like or agree with or understand, or when God's word confronts our culture, when there's something in, in our culture or in God's word that is obviously opposed to what everyone else believes and thinks, we can either bend God's word to suit us or we can allow God's word to bend us, to shape us. Here's the way uh, Proverbs puts it in chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, a, a well-known passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, not on the way that, that you think the world should work. In all your ways, submit to God. Submit to His Word. Submit to His truth. Submit to His leading. And He will make your path straight. He will begin to reshape, remold, reform you to the image of Jesus. And this is why Elimas must be confronted because if the word of God is at the heart of the mission of God, then God's word must be preserved and protected. And this is why Paul confronts Elimas so strongly. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Elimas is struck blind. Well, I guess not really interesting for him, but, but interesting for us to think about. Because do you remember Paul, at his conversion, was also struck blind? Paul knew that a short period of time in the darkness, it could lead to an eternity in the light. And so maybe this is what he's hoping for for Elimas. Now we're not told how Elimas responds, but we are told how Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, responds. And it leads us to our fourth and final point. 
You see, the Spirit of God is at work among the people of God in the world by bringing us together, by sending us out, by safeguarding the truth, and fourthly and finally, and most importantly, by saving people. Look at verse 12. When the proconsul, the the governor, saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This Roman governor comes to faith in Jesus and notice what it was that convinced him. He has just seen Saul confront Elymas. He has just seen Elymas struck blind, but it's not the miracles that amaze him. It's the teaching about Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. And this shows us that his conversion was genuine because it wasn't built upon these kind of spectacular events. It was built upon the sound word of God. The spirit of truth leads him to a knowledge of the truth. And friends, this is what the spirit of God is still doing to this day. Opening blind eyes, softening hard hearts, leading people to Jesus. And the spirit of God has been doing this for thousands of years all across the globe. If you're a Christian, it's why you are sitting in this room today. And so isn't this so encouraging for you and for me as we engage in God's mission in our lives? As we seek to show God's love to others, as we seek to share God's message with others, the same spirit that went with Saul and Barnabas goes with you and me. You're not alone. And if you're not a Christian, that same spirit can work in your heart and in your life. Maybe you've been on the edges of church and and faith for a while now. Maybe today's the day to draw near. Maybe today's the day where the Spirit of God lights a spark in your life that will never go out. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We are never alone. The Spirit of God goes with us as we go from here and into every single day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us on our own, that you have poured out your spirit into our hearts and empowered us with everything we need Lord, help us to lean not on ourselves. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to submit to you, to be led by you, to be filled by you, knowing that you have brought us near by your grace, that you've brought us together in Christ, and that you send us out for your glory. And Lord, for those of us here this morning, who maybe have never drawn near. Today, we want to stop leaning on ourselves and we want to put ourselves in your hands, the hands that will never let us go, the hands that will never let us down, the hands that will hold us until our faith is made sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.